When I was growing up, I never heard a good word about bacteria. Bacteria were dangerous things to be avoided and destroyed. Since the turn of the millennium and the Human Microbiome Project, there has been this idea that actually bacteria are incredibly important for us. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Sander Katz is an activist, fermentation guru, and author of many influential books, including The Art of Fermentation and the deeply reported The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved, Inside America's Underground Food Movements. I had Sander in the studio to talk about life and writing and what he's been up to on his Tennessee farm. We also get into what fuels his big and ambitious book projects. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sander Katz. Sandor Katz, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for responding to my email. I think I cold emailed you over the holiday break. And if you happen to be in New York, like look me up and you're here you are. Here I am. Yeah. I mean, you know, you um, um you know, if you don't reach out, if you don't ask, then the then the answer can never be yes. I mean, your book, The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved, has been on my desk, on my shelf for a couple dec a decade, and I'm always kind of poking through it huge fan of your work and your scholarship. So thank you. It's a big honor. Okay. Well, it's my, it's, it's my pleasure. And, uh, you know, it's especially a pleasure to hear people reference that book because, yeah. um, I mean, I loved, uh, you know, I, I, I loved writing that book and putting that into the world, but it's the book I, you know, kind of hear the least about. Right. I know. And, and, and I feel like Alicia Kennedy has highlighted your work, um, a lot. And I think she's bringing new folks to that book. I got to give her credit. Um, but before we get to that book, because I have a couple questions about it specifically, what are you doing in New York? Well, um, uh, I mean, basically, um, um, last weekend I was speaking at uh, the PASA Sustainable Agriculture Conference in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and um, I just felt like I was I was due for a visit in New York. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I, I grew up here. Yeah. I grew up on the Upper West Side, and um, um, you know, my father, who's quite elderly at this point, lives in the Hudson Valley. So in recent times, I've been visiting him without visiting uh, my friends in the city, but uh, this just seemed like a good moment for me to come uh, yeah. check in on my friends here. What was life like growing up on the Upper West Side food-wise? I think I'd be, I'd be really curious about some of the places that come to mind about your childhood and, and your, your young adulthood in New York. Well, I mean, first of all, I would just sometimes people assume that New York is like a difficult place to to grow up. And I mean, I loved growing up in New York. I, I mean, compared to friends of mine yeah. who grew up in places where their parents had to drive them around, I had a huge amount of independence and autonomy from a very young age. I was taking the public bus to school beginning in third grade. Um, so I was sort of, you know, navigating mass transit uh, uh, myself. Uh, in terms of food, um, um, you know, we we ate a lot of Chinese food. Um, you know, one thing that's um, um, you know pretty particular mm -hmm. to New York that I love to tell people about that they often haven't heard about is Cuban Chinese food. Yeah. So you know, I grew up eating a lot of the um, um, Chinese Cuban food, um, and. Uh, 
you know, my, my parents also liked to cook. So, sure. um, um, you know, we, we, we cooked at home most of the time. Um, and, uh, and we also lived, uh, like a block and a half away from Zabar's. So yeah. Zabar's was sort of, you know, always part of, part of the story and things we'd pick up and bring home from Zabar's. I have to ask you, so you're, you're well known for your work with fermentation, though, as we referenced your food policy work and, and scholarship is, is also profound, but were you, were you dipping into the pickle barrel at Zabar's at an early age? Oh, Were yeah, those yeah. your first fermented foods? Sure, sure. I mean, I, I could really trace like, you know, my earliest um, um, interest in in fermentation to, to pickles. I mean, yeah. I, I loved pickles. I had a reputation in my family for loving pickles. If all the pickles were gone from the jar in the refrigerator, probably I was the one who ate them. Um, so, um, yeah, no, I've, I've, I've had a like a, a, a deep, <laughs> lifelong love of pickles. I mean, yeah. when I was a kid, I wasn't thinking about how they were made. Yeah. That, that came later, but the lactic acid flavor yeah. of fermented uh, uh, pickles, you know, really made a, an impression on me very early. Are you doing halves or fulls? Like, what's what's your take? Oh, I'm full sour. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, yeah. dumb, dumb question. I mean, I, I mean, I like a half sour fine. Yeah. I mean, I, I I really have never met a pickle I didn't like. No, it's true. Um, so I like <laughs> all kinds of pickles, but a full sour is my preference. So you travel the world giving lectures and teaching classes about fermentation, and you call yourself a bit of a revivalist. Um, so what is your draw then to basing much of your career around fermentation? Well, I mean, you know, it was a personal obsession long before I fell into it as a career. I mean, I did not sort of begin like thinking like, oh, I want to have a career as a fermentation no. revivalist. <laughs> um, you know, um, I, you know, I told you as a kid, I loved pickles. Yeah. When I was in my early 20s, I spent a few years following a macrobiotic diet and macrobiotics places a strong emphasis on the digestive benefit of mm-hmm. other pickles, uh, of pickles and other live ferments. And I started noticing that these pickles that I'd been eating my entire life, whenever I would eat them, I could feel the salivary glands under mm. my tongue squirting out saliva, and I really began to associate them with getting my digestive juices flowing and and really seeking them out. But, you know, the, the thing that, you know, the, the catalyst for getting me to investigate fermentation beyond as something that I enjoyed eating was that I moved in 1993 from New York, where I had lived my, you know, almost my entire life. Life, uh, until then to rural Tennessee. And one of the changes in my life at that time is I started gardening. Mm. And, um, you know, it was really the garden that gave me a practical reason to wow. learn about fermenting. And, you know, the first season I was gardening, we had a really nice bed of uh, cabbages. And, um, you know, I knew I liked sauerkraut. I knew sauerkraut had something to do with preserving cabbages, but I didn't know how to do it. And, you know, I looked in the joy of cooking. I learned. You know, oh, that I, was your first source. I, joy. I I began fermenting, you know, out of a, from a recipe uh, out of the joy of cooking, yeah. and you know, and then once I made that first batch and realized how deceptively simple and straightforward it was, and how you know delicious fresh homemade kraut was. I mean, I definitely like just started experimenting on my own. You know, oh, what happens if I add carrots to this? What yeah. happens if I have to mm-hmm. add turnips? What if there's no cabbage? Will it still work? Um, you know, what other kinds of seasonings can I add in? I, I made country wines. I made yogurt. I started a sourdough. 
Great point there to say that fermentation does not only mean vegetables. I think that's super oh, important. We're talking yeah, about yeah, yeah, wine. Sure. We're talking about drinks, and we'll get into that. We're talking about sausage making. There is nothing any human being has ever eaten that cannot <laughs> be fermented. Like anything right. we could possibly eat can be fermented in uh, in a multitude of different ways. Um, yeah. Um, I, yeah. Um, Were you a science guy in college? You went to Brown. Were you studying like – I was uh, not a science guy at all. I mean really the last time I took a science class was high school. Um, So, I mean, I've become very interested in, you know, microbiology and and other aspects of biology and, and, you know, because my partner is interested in geology, I've learned a lot about geology and become interested in that. So, I mean, I'm much more interested in science now than I was when I was, you know, in college. Yeah. Well, let's go back to 1993 because you moved from New York City to, to Cannon County, Tennessee. And you're part of a vibrant extended community of queer folks who had moved many from New York. What was that like, that community in Tennessee in the early 90s? What was like establishing that community? Well, I mean, I wasn't part of establishing that community. That community or already existed. Got and, it. And I mean, basically, the way I ended up moving there is, um, you know, at a, at a moment in my life when I was ready for a big change, mm-hmm. um, you know, I just random like I, my roommates that I lived with in uh, in New York had previously lived in New Orleans, and I and I had gotten to know some of their friends from New Orleans who would visit us in New York, mm-hmm. and um, we decided to go to Mardi Gras in nineteen. 19- 92 and we stayed with one of my friend's friends who had mm-hmm. stayed with with us so um um you know we were at Mardi Gras and I just like I met these people who were queers that lived at this community in rural Tennessee and they just I hung out with them all weekend they regaled me with stories of milking goats and yeah. gardens and orchards mm-hmm. and um you know I was just thoroughly charmed by them and it had never occurred to me that anything like that could even exist so uh, I decided to go and visit them and then I visited them a few months later and then mm-hmm. I started talking to them about you know how would a person go about you know moving down here to be part of this community what do you do for a job then I mean how do you make money what is the is it part of a real commune where you're actually living um in, in a sustainable economic paradise? Well, I, I'm not sure I would call it a sustainable uh, uh, economic <laughs> paradise. Sorry. I mean, you know, it's a, I mean, the community, you know, at that time, you know, required almost nothing to live there. I mean, basically you had to contribute $75 a month. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, because I had been living in a sort of a, a rent-stabilized apartment that I inherited the lease to and I had a, you know, a, a reasonable professional job in mm-hmm. municipal government, you know, I was really able to coast for a, like a good long time when I when I landed in, in Tennessee without working. So I was really devoting myself to the community full time. Very cool. Um, wow. And, um, you know, the the community had, had you know, been there in different uh, um, iterations since about 1970 when some hippies bought the land and you know it just continues to evolve I lived in the in the commune from uh, 1997 till 2010 now I live down the road hmm. um, so I'm still involved you know the community has really um, diversified and you know there's a there's a you know, wide range of um, you know kind of neighbors and some other yeah communal land projects. Are there some blowout meals? Are there are there like celebrations oh, and feasts? Oh, yeah, no, totally. No, we, we we really well and 
um, uh, you know, sometimes there's just really, you know, special things that, you know, people people are are growing. I mean, you know, we have fresh milk from goats. Uh, um, you know, I, I raised two pigs with a with a, a friend of mine, and so I have lots of um, uh, you know meat from the pigs that we raised. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I rendered just tons of lard. I've been, you know, I've I've just completely like um, surrendered myself to lard, and mm-hmm. I, I've been making everything with lard. Well, so, give me one thing you've make, made recently with lard. I mean, just anything. Yeah, you know, fry eggs with lard. Sure. Um, um, you know, saute vegetables with lard. Like, you know, every, yeah. everything, everything, everything too. is better with lard. Yeah. yeah, sure. I mean, you can make a wonderful pie crust. Yeah, the light, pies. flaky. Exactly. Um, no, it's 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 really wonderful. So yeah, and um, well, okay. One thing I've been cooking with a lot is chestnuts. Uh, ah. You know, at my place right now, I have three chestnut trees, and we just collect, mm-hmm. um, um, uh, you know, many pounds of chestnuts, and we've sort of developed a, a really effective way of, um, uh, you know, drying them to stabilize them. And you make flour? So, yeah. I mean, I grind it up. I make flour That's and cool. crumble. Um, um, you know, and also I, I, I love to, like, you know, roast fresh chestnuts um, yeah. over an open fire or in an oven, and that's delicious. There's a lot of ways to cook them, but I've been making, you know, I've, I've been baking with them. I make like a, a, a polenta, yeah. a chestnut polenta. That's Sounds really delicious. beautiful. Wow. Have you ever um, thought about opening a restaurant? Have you ever been, like had that impulse? Have I ever thought about it? Sure, I've thought yeah. about it, but I, I've, <laughs> I've never, I've never dwelled on it long. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's not my forte, really. Like, um, smart. Um, um, you know, cook. I love to cook, but. Turning out food mm-hmm. on a schedule yeah. in in consistent right? ways is not my forte. Yeah, but you, do you sell products? Do, are no, you... I, I mean I don't really sell any products. Yeah. I mean yeah. I, I mean I have I've had people be like, yeah. could I buy a gallon of your sauerkraut or something? But I mean you know, that's I'm not, like that's I'm, like a, a prized possession if you can get a gallon. I, of your I, I've never you know been part of any kind of licensed production business. Yesterday, why well, one one of the fun things I did in New York <laughs> is I I went out and visited um, um, Mama O. Kimchi, yeah. Kadim O, um, and I visited Kadim out at his um, um, relatively new production yeah. space in Hollis, and so I got to sort of um, uh, you know visit a part of the city that I had actually never been to, and um, you know get to see what my friends Hollis Queens are on DMC. There you go. And I got to see what my friend Kadim's uh, yeah. um, production facility is like. And it's always fun for me as someone who's been doing all this kind of fermentation, but at, on a small kitchen yeah, scale, yeah. just to see, you know, what kind of equipment and vessels people are yeah. using when they're when they're scaling it way up. I really like Mama O's. It's a, good, it's a great brand. I want to talk about The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved. It came out in 2006. Uh, it's been taught widely in food studies programs, and uh, it's widely been read. I, I'd like to first just get into what inspired the research for this book. What what was that journey like? Yeah, well, so, okay, my first book came out in 2003, and um, in 2003 and 2004, I got very um, ambitious uh, mm-hmm. uh, with organizing book tours, and, um, you know, partly as a result that I was living in this community where I had very low overhead, and I could mm-hmm. go away for months at a time, and it wasn't a problem, and, um, uh, 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 you know, partially because I was just so excited to have a book 
out and partially because I have a network of friends all around the country. How punk rock, Sandor? I, I mean, it feels know, that way. I basically spent, you know, the better part of a year traveling around different parts of the U.S. And, yeah. and also I have, you know, I have skills from when I was working in politics and government in New York, how to set things like that up. So mm-hmm. I was just going to food co-ops, farmers markets, sustainable agriculture conferences. I mean, anywhere that would have me, really. Um, um, And doing little, like, sauerkraut making demos, Mm -hmm. talking to people about fermentation, trying to sell copies of my books. And and, um, in the course of that book tour, I just met so many people who uh, were engaged in different kinds of grassroots projects uh, organized around food that, you know, I came home just feeling inspired to write a book about grassroots yeah. food activism. Yeah, yeah. And, um, uh, you know, there wasn't a singular food activist movement, and there is not today a singular food activist movement, but there are lots of different grassroots movements that are, you know, organized around food in different ways. And so, you know, that's that's what that book was about. You're writing and about slow food it. early on. You're writing about sustainable agriculture early on. You're writing about the complexity of the organic certification early on. I'd like to hear almost 20 years later, what are you proud to have gotten right? And then maybe at the end, what are you proud? Like, what, what, what did we, what did you maybe not get right or, or wish that would have happened, but didn't happen? Well, I mean, I just think like, you know, all of the, all of these issues have, you know, have moved on. I mean, it's been, it has been al- almost 20 years. Yeah. And so, um, uh, you know, it's not for me at this point, it's not so much about, you know, what did I get right and what did I get wrong? And it's more just like, okay, well, th- how, how have things, mm-hmm. how have things progressed? And I, you know, I think that, you know, we see even greater consolidation, of, um, um, you know, food production, distribution, and, you know, mass retailing. But at the same time, we have more and more alternatives to that, even as the the, the mainstream food industries have um, continued to consolidate. um, um, You know, I think that the, for the people who are interested in getting their food outside of that system, there are more and more alternatives that are available. So let me ask you this with that point in mind. What's the catalyst? Is it technology? Is it is it food media getting better? Is it uh, e-commerce? Are we able to buy food in a way that's a little more like from local sustainable agriculture well, easier than ever? I mean, honestly, I, I I mean, I think it's it's mostly because there are more and more people who are who sort of are aware of some of the problems yeah. with the sort of centralized uh, uh, production and distribution industries and who are seeking out alternatives to it. And, you know, one of the ways I think about it is that, like, you know, I imagine women of my mother's generation. She was born in 1936. I imagine women of my grandmother's generation. She was born in 1909. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, for them, like the supermarket and a place where they could go get everything in one place and, you know, some of the food is already um, um, prepared for them, you know, it represented a kind of liberation for them. Um, And I think that for people in, you know, my generation and for younger people, um, you know, there's just been a growing awareness of some of the problems with that system. So, I mean, sure, everybody loves convenience. Convenience is wonderful. But what are some of the downsides? You know, Mm -hmm. how destructive 
destructive are some of the practices that are, you know, allowing for, um, um, you know, farming at the scale at which we're farming? You know, what is the heavy use of chemicals, you know, doing to our soil and our waterways? Um, You know, what are the ugly realities of, um, you know, the, the, you know, raising animals at a, at a, at a, at a mass level to sort of, um, um, you know, supply our hunger for, um, you know, meat and for milk and, 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 and for eggs, um, you know, how wasteful is packaging, how much plastic are we using? What are the repercussions of that? So, I mean, I think as more people become aware of, 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 you know, of, of this destruction of, you know, how our food system feeds into the, you know, climate change disaster, you know, all these things there, there's just people who are asking more questions about food, you know, how how was this produced? Where does this come from? And I think that it's, you know, it's really interrogating food like that. That's leading people to alternatives. Yeah. I'm going to ask you point blank, tough question. What's, What's a more dire crisis, uh, public health, what we put into our bodies, or climate, what we're doing to the environment by what we put into our bodies? I mean, I, I mean, I would say the latter, cli- the yeah. climate change. Like when I, when I talk yeah. to people about like, you know, organic uh, 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 agriculture, I mean, you, you know, I, I mean, sure, I think it's 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 great to think about, you know, sort of reducing the, you know, chemical load, the, you know, potential toxins that we're putting into our bodies. But I think that the more dire issue yeah. is, um, um, you know, waterways, soil, the ecosystem, how it impacts upon, you know, the, 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 the biodiversity around yeah. us. Switching gears, you aren't just an educator and a cookbook author and a, and a writer, but you're a traveler. And I want to know, you've written about your journeys. So give me two memorable trips that you've taken that you've maybe written about or not that you feel really informs the work that you do. Sure. So um, my latest book is Fermentation Journeys, exactly. and that's a book about uh, fermented foods and beverages that I've learned about primarily in my travels, but sometimes also from, you know, people who I meet, uh, um, you know, who are from different parts of the world or who have encountered things or who have experimented. And, well, I mean, you know, one really profound uh, 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 trip that I took was was to China. And, I, you know, I've, I've always been curious about Chinese food. I've always loved to eat Chinese food. But, you you know, in my obsession with sauerkraut and, you know, over the years uh, reading a lot of the literature that exists about sauerkraut, the same story is repeated over and over again in every historical account of sauerkraut, that the idea of fermenting vegetables came from China and that it was, you know, nomadic peoples of Central Asia mm-hmm. that encountered uh, fermented cabbage in China and then spread the idea westward uh, uh, into Europe. And so, you know, I I always was curious about Chinese um, um, uh, methods of fermenting vegetables as well as other uh, uh, Chinese fermentation traditions, uh, Chinese uh, 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 rice alcohol, um, um, condiments like soy sauce and uh, doshi, which are the, you know, fermented whole beans. Um, So um, a Chinese-American student uh, who I became 
close friends with Mara King, um, um, organized a trip uh, with her mother, who, uh, oh, Judy, wow. who lives in Hong Kong, uh, primarily to visit this village, Chin Fen in Guizhou province, where um, where Judy had spent time and, and been telling Mara about for years, but Mara had never visited. And so Judy took Mara and I um, and another friend of ours to Chin Fen. And, you know, we went, we, we also were in a few other places okay. in China, but in this little village, you know, it, it's really largely a subsistence village. People are, are producing most of the food that they eat within the village, and there's just a huge amount of fermentation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we got to see Which how- is like a necessity of the economic situation that they're in. I mean, and also the, the climate, right? It's a shorter growing season there. Yeah, I mean, it's a, I mean, their growing season was pretty similar to, I think, what a growing season in the northeastern U.S. Right. Would, would, would be like. You know, but in this little village, they had extremely limited refrigeration. Sure. They were, um, um, uh, uh, you know, produce preserving um, fish and meat in a paste of rice and uh, uh, spices. And so, um, you know, people were just so excited to share with, uh, you know, once they realized we were interested in learning about fermentation, we just got invited into lots of different homes and, um, you know, got to see how they're making things. Mm-hmm. And, and we documented them. And for any of your listeners who would like to sort of see these videos that we produced, we produced eight uh, videos of roughly 10 minutes each, wow. each focused on a different fermented food or beverage. And you can see them at um, – uh, they're on YouTube and it's called People's Republic of Fermentation. That's amazing. I will link to those videos in the show notes. So easily just click on those. Is there another trip that you can point yeah, to? Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, I love, you know, I love the, the way you talk about your trips. This the, is great. The, I mean, the first time I visited Mexico, I mean, I really never had visited Mexico until I got invited to teach about fermentation there. And um, the first time I went to teach in in, in Mexico, which was um, in Monterrey, um, my host brought me to this farm about an hour and a half out of Monterrey where, among many other things, they're growing and producing pulque. And that was my first introduction to pulque. And, you know, each of the trips that I've made to Mexico since then, I've gotten to visit different uh, uh, pulque makers and... Um, Which is a drink. We should, talk, yeah, yeah, we should yeah. define pu- what that pu- is. Pulque is a, a, a beverage fermented from the sap of the maguey. The maguey yeah. is the agave plant, the, the century plant. Um, and it's this big, spiky, sucky that grows in, um, you know, basically dry environments. It takes like 12 years to grow. It's extremely hardy. It takes about 12 years to grow. And the sap is called the agua miel, the honey water. Mm. It's just so sweet and luscious, but just completely unstable. And it just spontaneously ferments within hours. And so pulque is this, uh, you know, lightly fermented yeah. beverage out of it that is so delicious that, you know, nobody's figured out how to stabilize it, which is why you don't see pulque no. like in shelves uh, um, um, of stores. You'll in, see it at in, bars in, once in a while. I feel in New York City, you'll see a pulque but it's clearly not what you're talking about. It's something different. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful process. Uh, you know, the, the fermentation process very is cool. very straightforward, but really the work of it is people who like know the plants, know to, how to recognize when the plant is ready to begin harvesting the sap. And then the just incredibly elaborate techniques that are involved in collecting the sap twice a day for, for a period of months. Wow. 
Sandor, this reminds me, if you go to like Erwan or Whole Foods or even your local Costco, fermented drinks are everywhere. They're everywhere, not just kombucha. They're under different names. Why have we as a culture gravitated towards fermented drinks in the past like couple years? Well, I would only point out that, um, um, you know, fermented drinks have had enduring popularity. I yes. mean, you know, beer and wine and sake, um, you know, these are fermented yeah. uh, drinks that the, people the have NA enjoyed. Yeah. On the NA side, I, I mean, really until, you know, the invention of carbon dioxide machines yeah. in the 20th century, if anyone ever had a carbonated drink earlier than that, it was with fermentation. And all around the world, there are these interesting, lightly fermented beverages that people drink. I, you know, one that I really love that I've written about in a few of my books is Mobi. If anyone's ever traveled in, in the Caribbean, there's this like bitter, sweet, lightly fermented uh, beverage. Uh, uh, English-speaking islands is called Mobi. Uh, Spanish-speaking islands is called Mavi. Mm. Um, and I was first introduced to it by a woman who was corresponding to with me from uh, Puerto Rico. Um, um, but incredibly delicious, lightly fermented beverage. You know, uh, Russia and other Slavic lands, mm -hmm. people drink kvass, which is, you know, just incredibly delicious. It's basically like old rye bread re-fermented into a I've beverage. seen like hot like D2C companies selling that stuff, like with cool labels and it's like kvass is here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, these things have been part of people's traditions sure. in a lot of different places. I mean, ginger beer yeah. um, um, is a, is another example of this. Now, I mean, you know, why now? I mean, uh, to me and, you know, the reason why my books have, you know, been as you know, popular as they have been is I, I just think that, um, you know, since the Human Microbiome Project, like, you know, when I was growing up in the, you know, in the 1960s and the 1970s, um, you know, I never heard a good word about bacteria. Bacteria were dangerous things to be avoided and destroyed. Um, you know, I would say since the turn of the millennium and the Human Microbiome Project, there has been slowly percolating into our popular awareness yeah. this idea that actually bacteria are incredibly important for us. Our um, functionality as human beings has a lot to do with the bacteria that are part of us. All these factors in our our modern lives from, you know, lack of fiber in our diets to chemical exposure is causing a diminishment of biodiversity, mm -hmm. but we need biodiversity. So people, I think that this is the number one reason why, you know, there's been so much um, renewed interest in, in like gut health, straight in up. Gut health and all kinds <laughs> of fermented things Ugh. as means towards gut health. Yeah, gut, gut health. I mean, it really does kind of have a, have a ring to it. It yeah. sells a lot of books, I'll tell you that. Uh, <laughs> um, Sandor, what's a sneaky, like, skill that you have or interest that we maybe don't know? We know you as the guy, the fermentation guy, the guy who writes about um, food policy, but, like, give us... Well, I mean, you know, my interest in fermentation grew out of my garden, and yeah. my garden continues to just be a huge, um, um, mm. uh, um, you know, activity that I love and obsession. I love eating things every day out of the garden, and so I put a lot of my energy into gardening. Yeah. Beyond fermentation, I'm just sort of obsessive about using things out of the garden. I, maybe I mentioned chestnuts earlier, yeah. but, you know, I've got all these chestnuts. I'm really, like, determined 
determined to like find more and more ways to um, make use of them. So, you know, I have a lot of like food interests beyond fermentation, but, sure. you know, I also, I mean, I love nature. And, um, you know, I love I love walking and hiking and, you know, climbing and seeing beautiful places. Um, Tennessee is a nice, nice part of the world. Yeah. Absolutely. Tennessee is a is a is a beautiful place. Yeah. Have you been to Korea ever? Um, I have. I changed planes in Seoul once, but I don't think that counts as going to to Korea. No, but I'm dying to go to Korea. I mean, it's a place that where there's you know certainly a lot of like foods I'm interested in over the years. I've you know met people I'm interested in visiting there. Um, So you know one one of these years. Yeah. um, um, In the not too distant. It'd be great. I I feel I've written a couple Korean cookbooks with Yuki Hong, and I, I I think about kimchi, beshu kimchi, the cabbage kimchi, but all the different types of fermentation within Korean cooking, um, which is different than China and Japan, though linked, you know, Well, and also all, all kinds of kimchi. I mean, I've made beautiful like stuffed perilla leaf yeah. uh, uh, kimchi and stuffed cucumber kimchi. Yep. And, um, um, you know, there's an incredible variety, you know, just in the world of kimchi. But yeah, also all these, you know, gochujang and doenjang yep, yep, and yep. makgeolli. Yep. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really quite interested in, and I'm, I'm sure there's all kinds of, um, you know, sort of less internationally known uh, fermented delicacies oh, yeah. that, you should, that await. You should make it there. Uh, what's the best use of sauerkraut? Have to ask you. Like, what, I mean, I think of the the bratwurst as a great vehicle for sauerkraut, but am I forgetting something? Well, I mean, bratwurst is a fine vehicle, but you know, <laughs> I mean, sauerkraut goes with everything. I mean, really? you know, um, Sick. Uh, let's go there. I, I like mean, it. you know, this morning I had fried eggs for breakfast with sauerkraut. Um, yeah. Did you Did you make those or were I mean, I was at my brother's apartment, yeah, and he yeah. he fried me some eggs, and Good you man. know there was a jar of sauerkraut in the in the fridge, and you know we had Love some it. sauerkraut with the eggs. Um, on any kind of a sandwich, you know, yeah. sauerkraut is a condiment, and um, you know it it's moisturizing and 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 um, you know gives a beautiful flavor accent. Uh, um, you know, to pretty much any kind of a, a sandwich. You know, I even eat. Peanut butter and kimchi sandwiches. Oh, that's I've had that. That's yeah. that's ill. So, I love that. Um, that's a good, but, good but you know, I mean, I would say that fermented vegetables in general are extremely yeah. versatile, and people even use sauerkraut in desserts and fermentation journeys. I have an I, I have a recipe for a uh, sauerkraut chocolate cake. Yeah, um, I love that idea. It's a you know, it's just it's an extremely versatile. It food. sounds really good. It sounds it, really it, good. It is delicious. I mean, you know, what I would suggest is use a fairly plain, straightforward sauerkraut, one that doesn't have a lot of strong seasoning. Yeah. If you want it to just blend into the chocolate cake. We did a white chocolate snickerdoodle with kimchi in our first book, which was okay. pretty successful, but I would say the sauerkraut cake sounds a little better. Just saying. Um Sandra, we ask all guests on the Taste Podcast if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world, what would that book project be? Mm. I mean, that's our – well, I mean, there's so many places – where I've become interested in food traditions that, you know, that I have not had the opportunity to, to sort of, you know, visit and, 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 and really explore. And, you know, one of my, one of my, um, um, like really strong food interests that I have written about in, in, in my other books, um, um, is natto. So natto is a Japanese name, but 
You know, there are natto-like foods in a lot of different places, including West Africa. So, you know, all across West Africa, there are these very interesting um, condiments, not fermented from soybeans, but generally from African locust beans. But in terms of the microbiology, it's it's Bacillus subtilis, the same bacteria that's producing natto. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, this is something that I intend to explore um, cool. uh, uh, further. But, you know, if I had a bu- no budgetary limit uh, uh, <laughs> research project, I would be traveling to like, you know, all the places that have, you know, natto related uh, 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 foods, you know, including different places around West Africa to to to, to learn about uh, these foods and the ways that people use I love them. that. Oh, I hope, to, I hope to read that one day. I think it sounds great. Sandra Katz, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Martha Hoover, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited. So first off, like, what have you been up to in New York? Like, I like to ask, you're, you're in from Indianapolis. We'll get to your, your fine city, but what have you been up to? Well, literally, I landed at noon and I oh. ran to my hotel, grabbed a cappuccino, changed my clothes and came here. So I've not had two seconds not to yet. to do anything yet. But as soon as we're done, I'm very excited. I'm meeting my daughter and one of her very close colleagues, and we're going to go to the ballet tonight. Nice. And I love doing ballet in New York, so yeah. we're very. I'm really looking forward that be to nice. that. And what about restaurant wise? Are you are you making stops? Do you have a list? Do you have a, a, a notes app? Well, actually, I'm meeting a friend tomorrow night at. A, a, I've never been to the Tin Building, which I yeah. believe is relatively new. Yeah. Uh, and I happened to be staying down that direction. So yeah. we were like, let's go check it out. I've read, of course, Pete Wells's version of mm-hmm. it, his his review. So I'm going in with a little bit of bias, but I have a <laughs> lot of respect for Jean George and I want to see what he's yeah. done in that with that major project. Well, as an operator of many restaurants in Indianapolis, when you're in New York or any other city, you're just in Paris as well with your staff doing some some training in R and D. Yeah. How do you look at restaurants when you're not in your city? What are you What are you looking for? Well, you know, I I have a ton of restaurants in my own city, and I tend to I think most restaurateurs would agree that their own food, their own restaurants, are probably deep inside their most favorite. <laughs> I um, hope so. so. I would hope so too. I have a tremendous amount of pride in. Mm-hmm are is it the restaurants that I own and operate. But when I go to other restaurants, I look at them. I always look at them through a restaurant owner's eyes. And, you know, it's just a trained eye about what works in a restaurant and what doesn't work. Um, and, of course, I, I can't help but to be inspired wherever I go. Mm-hmm. And we did just come back from from Paris. We have this uh, program in my company called Pot of Paris, and we take a small group of people once a year to Paris. And, you know, it's a really expensive development tool, but I have found that it has been a really remarkable development tool for a variety of reasons. But all we do is go to restaurants. Yeah, That's I mean, all you're, we you're do. Not, you're not catching the Musée d'Orsay no, up there. Yeah, no, you're, you're doing... I mean, you know, we I kind of, because I think everyone needs to see some of the art, we always go to one of the smaller museums and one of the, the first days of the trip. Mm-hmm. The trip is incredibly compact. Yeah. It's just filled with activity and it's immersion in 
particularly Parisian culinary culture. So what are you seeing right now in 2023 in Paris? I haven't been, it's been like two years since I've been there, or four years before the pandemic. It's the most exciting food city in, in the world. Well, to me, it still is. Yeah. Um, at, granted, there are a lot of probably wonderful food cities that I've not traveled to, but Paris set the bar for me when I went there the first time as a 17-year-old. Mm. I'm almost 69 now, so my first trip there was a long, long time ago. That trip alone determined my food DNA, so to speak. Wow. Um, So what I do, and it was so, that trip was still remarkably inspirational and really impacted the quality of food that I serve. It especially was very much inspiration for me opening up my first restaurant in 1989. Were you born yet? I was born in 1989. (laughs) You're you're generous. I was born in 89 uh, or lived in, I was nine years old in 89. Okay. So when when you were nine, I opened up my first restaurant and I'm the girl who opened up a first restaurant having never worked in a restaurant and not knowing she was pregnant with her third child. That when at, you opened your first restaurant? When I opened my wow. first restaurant. That's my, my sister-in-law's a similar story. When she opened a restaurant, she was pregnant. What an interesting dynamic. Yeah. Did she know she was pregnant? Uh, the timeline is unclear to me. I don't want to say on the record because I don't remember what the timeline is, but I know she was definitely pregnant and, and opening a restaurant. And that's certainly, wow, Yeah. how'd it go? Uh, well, you know, I always love to say it was a perfect recipe for disaster, but here I am, <laughs> 34 years uh, and 14 restaurants later, I think it went really well. I can't wait to get into that. Were you, was that an era when they had the cracker machines for the um, the credit cards? Those yeah. crackers? Oh, for sure. Actually, the first three years I was in business, we didn't accept credit cards. It was cash only. Oh, my. With an old-fashioned till that, you know, you would go yeah. beep, beep, beep. It was a Casio. Uh, <laughs> probably cost, I don't know, 150 bucks that I bought at some, you know, office depot type place. Yeah. It, the restaurant world was, it, it, my timing was fortunate when I opened in 1989 yeah. because I opened... As a neophyte in the restaurant world, having never worked in a restaurant, was not a professional chef. You opened chef. without having worked in a restaurant? Not one day. This is Cafe Palachu we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, not one day. And it's still open to this day? It's not only open, we're expanding it, it's thriving, yeah. it's remarkably stable, yeah. and uh, like, you know, I'm not, it's kind of Sophie's choice, I'm not allowed to ever say out loud what my favorite restaurant is in my own group. But you can but, whisper in it. But I'm whisp- I'm winking to you. <laughs> I love it. Let's talk about Indianapolis because sure. I, I grew up not, not far from there, but I haven't really spent much time there. And I want to get your initial take or your right away, like, how, like why should we visit Indianapolis? Well, it, in the first place, the motto of Indianapolis is Crossroads of America. So it's right dab in the middle. So it's easy to get to. And why you should visit is also, I think I want to add an additional layer to the question is why you should visit and why you should consider staying. Yeah. Um, One of the benefits I have in living in Indianapolis is that the barriers to entry of opening up a restaurant or opening up small businesses of any kind, the barriers are just lower. Mm -hmm. And people are really, really accepting of they want they want things, Mm -hmm. you know, they're aspirational for their city. about I opened up my restaurant in 1989, and about 15 years later, there was a real 
uh, kind of a, a tick up in the community where people realized, and I think this happened in a lot of tertiary cities, you know, cities the size of Indianapolis that were close to larger cities yeah. were very close to Chicago, right? And people were just like, we don't want to have to drive three hours or get on a plane. For a good XYZ. For a good XYZ. Cafe, cafe That's a, right. a Korean restaurant, so, yeah. French bistro. And so they decided that, you know, they wanted to support what was theirs. Now, Indianapolis, truthfully, does not have a history the way a lot of cities mm-hmm. do of strong ethnic neighborhoods, immigrant neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, so we never really had and we never had a real history of independent restaurants. In fact, Indianapolis, similar, very similar to Columbus, Ohio, demographically, Indianapolis and Columbus in the 70s and 80s were considered the fertile ground to test these huge concepts that restaurants, restaurant owners like Darden were, you know, the Olive Gardens of Mm -hmm. the world. And BW3s. Oh, my gosh. Got a few of those in there. Yeah. Is that out of Michigan, by the way, or out of Wisconsin? I think, I think that might be more of like a Wisconsin-Minnesota yeah. thing. We're, we're, we're home of like Little Caesars Domino's. Yeah. That's our pride. Yeah. That's your pride? Yeah. That's it. Fast huh? food pizza. We invented it. I Was Domino's the first in that area? I think Domino's, for, for at least the, the chains, I think Pizza Hut might be before Domino's, but we had Little Caesars and Domino's Wow. from, from the great well, city of Detroit. Um, congratulations on that, <laughs> Detroit. I love Detroit, but that that is not— That's not your city. Those aren't the—I absolutely love Detroit, and I would love to have a restaurant or two in Detroit. Wait. So, Martha, let's go there because yeah. I think it's a cool idea about expansion. I have a lot of questions about your the concepts that you run and, and, yeah. and the dining taste, but you think about you might move out of Indianapolis? Yeah, I go back and forth, but mostly forth. Um, yes, I I travel a lot. And what's even more important than my traveling is my customers travel a lot. I have, um, you know, smart, sophisticated, mm-hmm. affluent customers for the most part that have a lot of um, ability to travel. And the common thing we hear when they come back from wherever they go is, oh, my God, we tried every breakfast place in whatever the city is that they went to, and there's nothing like Potashu. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, I I started out with no real desire to have a million restaurants. That was not my goal. My goal was to create a restaurant that was an extension of my dining room yeah. that was in my neighborhood that I could walk to or ride a bike to with my children that provided uh, what you know we now call third place I did there was yep. no such no such phrase as third place no such phrase as farm to table all that yeah. stuff we were doing all of that yeah, and we course. were creating that right so from day one I said that my restaurant the I thought it would just be one location that my restaurant was just like a student union for adults mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know that that kind of dates me I don't know what colleges, what college kids, they probably don't really hang out at student unions yeah, anymore. Yeah, I wonder. Should ask a college kid. Do you, do you go to the union? Do you yeah, get a, yeah. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure those are pretty passe, but yeah. at the same time, it meant a lot to me and it's still really short code. So basically, customers come back, I come back and I go, this is bar setting. This is really good. It's really mm-hmm. good food. It's remarkably approachable and accessible. Um, it's very neighborhood, very community based, 
And really what it is is just really good food. So it's really good effing food. Now, let's get into your brunch menu. I want to get a little bit of culinary detail. And as I mentioned, I've not had your food, but like what is Potashu's bag? Like what are you guys known for? Well, we're known for, you know what, if I told you what we were known for, <laughs> it would sound like every other breakfast restaurant. No, restaurant sell it. They are no, you can, I, you can I, say more. Well, this is what I'm going to sell. <laughs> it's not enough to just say what my items are. Yes, we're known for omelets. Yes, we're known for beautiful, but we do breakfast and lunch. What, we're, what we really are known for is the quality that we put into our ingredients yeah. and our, our experience, experience for both customers and for our staff and experience for the entire community. And that's what sets us apart. Yeah. Well, I wanted to have you in because, you know, we have plenty of, we're pitched lots of, of folks with beautiful food in regional markets that I've never been to. Like, I wish I could interview all of them, but we have limited spots. But you are essential to have on the show because of some of the 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 north stars that you kind of follow and i think equity is is very important diversity inclusion is important you have something called martha's book of rules yeah um and so, the first thing is is i wanted to specifically ask you about is is all employees are paid a livable wage how do you do that livable and actually beyond thriving wage livable we shouldn't really be clapping ourselves on the back for allowing people to have a livable wage. That to me is kind of sad and shouldn't be the benchmark. Um, I can tell you very simply how we do it. We run our organization with a tremendous amount of discipline and we charge what we need to charge for our food and our menu items so that we can pay people thriving wages. I think of um, Ari Weisenweg at Zingerman's as, as somebody who also has that ethic and, and your restaurants are parallel in that way that, you know, at the naked eye, yes, those, those pancakes are, are expensive. Someone might be able to like yelp that, but clearly, and we've had many chefs and restaurateurs on, you got to charge. You know, one of my true disappointments coming out of the pandemic is I, I made the, I was hopeful that restaurants would understand their finances wouldn't, you know, because of the lockdown and COVID, and that they would collectively say, we're not charging appropriately for the food. Yeah. And this gets to a very complex, and I know that we don't have time to really talk about economic theory and capitalism and Try me. food distribution, but the bottom line is, um, I'll try to be succinct here, the bottom line is our consumers, especially regarding food, value the most for the cheapest. And when you value the most for the cheapest, people, especially at the bottom of the production scale, whatever that is, the bottom, the people who mm -hmm. touch that food product at, at um, all levels are not respected enough to be paid appropriately. So, you know, I, I kind of laugh. I'm always like the people in my world who make the most money and are the most secure financially are the food distributors. They're not the farmers. They're not the, mm -hmm. you know, the, the people who are producing food. Line cooks too. They're not the line cooks. Yeah. They're not even the servers necessarily. It's the people who are kind of always, you know— um, who who are really taking advantage of this system, this mousetrap mm -hmm. that we've built. So I do, I agree. Ari and I both are on the exact same page. We have talked about this the several times that we have had conversations. I, I think we are both unapologetic 
about our need to charge what we need to charge to create profitable, sustainable businesses mm-hmm. that treat their employees with respect, dignity, and and yeah. th- pay them what they deserve to be paid. More Martha's Book of Rules, use of gender pronouns as part of extensive inherent bias training. Yep. And that's a topic that I think in the restaurant world, particularly outside of the major cities, is probably pretty rare. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's rare still in 2023, but we've been doing this for a long time. I know that there are a lot of companies and I'm assuming there are a lot of restaurants that try to check out that, you know, became acutely aware the summer of 2020 after George Floyd's uh, homicide that they needed to have some program or they needed to do something. And I'm like, oh, boy, if you're just checking off a box, Mm -hmm. it's not good enough. Um, And we really we view everything we do, whether it's a hire of a a hire promoting people, um, who what vendors we use, uh, who we decide to bank with, everything Mm -hmm. comes through the lens of diversity and inclusion. It's great that you do that and great that you speak about it because I think it's a topic that, yeah, 2020 brought a lot of light to this, but then the pandemic happens and it kind of fades away and all this fades away. And and my, my final question about Martha's Book of Rules is, I mean, you offer health insurance plus to your, your, your employees. How do you make this work with rising costs? How do you make it make I, it all work? I, it all goes back to what we charge for our food. Yeah. I, I cannot make it. I mean, we are, I believe, a really well-run organization. We're really careful and mm-hmm. we're very disciplined. We actually were like that before the pandemic, but coming out of the pandemic, we have um, tightened up everything. But there are certain things we will never we will we will never not honor it's the quality of our food, the quality of our premises, and the quality of how we treat our people. Um, and those things come at a cost. You know, it always amazes me. No one bats an eye that Apple, they, you know, they have an Apple phone. No one cares that Apple phone is $1,200 now. $1,200. Now it's yeah. $1,200. And, you know, no one cares about that. No one cares that Apple is, you know, mint billionaires, right? That Mm. they have all these people that have become extraordinarily uber wealthy. But people seem to begrudge a restaurant that is making money. Um, And the bottom bottom line is restaurants are businesses. They're not, they are meant to be profitable. And I do think there is a great, area of conversation that could be had about the profits that restaurants make. Um, You know, I don't have investors, so Mm. I, and I'm certainly far from being a publicly traded restaurant company. So, and I don't even have a board of directors. I do everything myself, right? I'm a sole owner of my business, which means I get to do exactly what I want to do. And one of the things I started doing in 1989 and don't forget, in 1989, restaurant profits were between 20 and 30 percent across wow. the board. Restaurants, that's the margin right now. It's like six. Yeah, we're seven. lucky. You're lucky to have yeah. a restaurant that's between five and 10 yeah, percent or even lucky. over 10 percent. Right. Yeah. 
So, you know, um, it, it kind of all starts with that. Um, I think to your right? point about the public perception and why Apple doesn't get shit for uh, minting billionaires and having like, you know, hundreds of billions on, of cash on hand. But like you see a successful restaurateur charging like $39 for a dish and people grumble because maybe they come back from that era when like people were maybe – Rich who ran restaurants, wealthy. And and I also think there's this uh, false premise that that $39, that people do this weird calculation where they (laughs) think they can buy all the ingredients and do it for X amount of dollars. And they assume then that all this money goes into the restaurateur's pocket. Here's the truth. If you understood the number of people who touch a plate before a plate gets served. And I'm not just talking about a line cook. I'm talking about along the food chain, every person who has a fingerprint on that food. It's I'm like shocked when when people complain, for instance, about a pound of coffee being seventeen, eighteen oh dollars. You're, talk, you're talking my. This is my language. Seriously, I write a lot about coffee and have had many on coffee. But yeah, let's okay, go. You so continue, you, continue. So, I'm always like, wait a minute. Are you telling me that you're complaining about this agricultural product that is made that is grown? Let, choose your continent, in, right? In, in zones of conflict, in too. Zones let, let, of let's conflict, get real yeah. about that. Yeah. You know, drought, climate change. Uh, all Civil the, war. All this stuff. Human rights violations. And then all the, how complicated it is to actually grow coffee plants and to do it properly. And then the process of picking and drying. And then you've got to ship it, sort it, and ship it. And then you ship it and it gets somewhere and some green bean buyer buys it. And then... It goes to a roaster of some kind and then a roaster does all their roasting and packaging and then they ship it out. And then it gets eventually to a restaurant or a coffee shop or then ultimately to the end user, the customer. And you're complaining that all those hands have touched it and it's $15 a pound. Mm -hmm. I'm like – I just don't get how the world works. I don't yeah. get pricing. Let's layer, let's layer on that you're willing to buy an Amstel light at a bar for $14. You know? Yeah. So Like you're is... buying really bad macro beers and you're not complaining, but then you complain about coffee. Yeah. Is that crazy? <laughs> well, we can link to like we can go 18 on and on and on. Uh, coffee's a – I try to, on the show, elevate coffee and, and have a conversation similar to what you said. But you can relate that to a lot of things. You can relate that to – Agriculture and produce, you could relate that to to, uh, cooking oils. Well, speaking of coffee, we are actually creating our own roastery. Okay, so are you, you, you're in the biz now. I'm in the biz, and I'm in the biz not to wholesale, not to sell Mm -hmm. it, not to outsource it. Uh, I am a very proud control freak, (laughs) and I find that whenever we have control of a product from start to finish, Mm -hmm. we do better. Um, and I, I mean, not only is our performance better, but the quality of the product is better. I trust my people. I trust our systems. I, I trust um, our ability to deliver on promise of quality better than I do other people. Wow. Um, Coffee's hard, though. Coffee is hard. It's really hard, and there's a lot of competition. Uh, uh, you know what? We're only roasting it for my own restaurant. As you said, so there you go. It doesn't. We're we're doing it as a as a vertical. Yeah. Uh, to to control the product as 
vertically as much yeah, as possible. Yeah, and that's a cost savings. I mean, we later. make our own bread. Why shouldn't we also roast yeah, our Yeah, and you coffee? run re- restaurants that are all-day cafes and brunch, and you go through a lot of coffee, and you started seeing that wholesale coffee bill, and you're like, let's do it ourselves. Makes it, perfect sense. It really, the the bill is one thing. Um, what really bothers me is the 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 qual the quality. Yeah. Um, you know, we have a tremendous amount of volume and there are not a lot of small roasters who could handle our volume. Yeah. And what we saw, especially around two thousand eight or so, was the consolidation of roasteries mm-hmm. where we were we were working at that time with Stumptown when it was in Portland yeah. and was like a small roastery. We we started working with them years ago. And then all of a sudden, all these venture guys and equity people start coming in yeah, and buying up. They ro- came for Blue Bottle. They came for Intelli. They came for, for all of them. For Counterculture. Yeah. They came from all, for all of yeah. them. And so we, uh, you know, this has been a process where I'm like, ugh. We've got to do this. We've got to own I this it. ourselves. I can't wait to taste it. Uh, to go back to the point you made about all the different steps in a, in a, in a dish, have you ever been on Andrew Friedman's podcast or, or talked to him? No, he, I have. I've talked to him, but I've never been Good on guy. It. Well, his next book is exactly that, so I just have to give him a plug. His book is called Literally the Dish, and it follows a restaurant in Chicago. Well, um, at, and, the, at the beginning—I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no. I'm a horrible interrupter. No, we're, we're excited to talk to each other. I love it. So at the very beginning of COVID, when we were, of course, you know, I, I am loathe to use this word ever again, but when we were pivoting and trying to save our asses and yeah. all that kind of stuff, we created a poster that we used on, so we used everywhere we could, but we used it primarily in social media that talked about the number of hands that touch a dish. And it was really well-received. People, I had restaurateurs from across the country reach out to me to see Good. if they could use it. I was like, of course. Um, I, you know, I I was happy to, that they were excited enough to want to use it. And then it also spoke volumes to our customers who mm-hmm. were like, wow, I had never thought of it's it. It's a really good good practice for a restaurant group Well, it also was amazing for my employees who, um, you know, were very siloed sometimes yeah. in, what they, in their view of what their, their impact is or what they do for the company. Um, and a server may not necessarily realize all that goes into making a loaf of bread yeah. that, that we make. Let me ask you, Martha, if you go back in time and dine for a weekend in any era <laughs> with a notebook or, or an iPhone and, and capture it and, and bring it back into the, in the current time, what yeah, would that era I, be? I know. I wonder how many people talk about post-World War II Paris, but um, I, and I love that idea. And French food is really... Julia Child, that was her favorite time period of being in France. And I always think how it's so romanticized and sitting in a cafe and talking philosophy, smoking cigarettes, drinking brandy. And, you know, I, I envision um, Ernest Hemingway going to the Luxembourg Gardens and mm-hmm. poaching a partridge so he could eat that night. As much as I would love to do that, I really think, okay, this is going to sound kind of crazy. I would like to have been for the weekend in the south of France with the Rolling Stones in the 70s when they were living there. Oh, yeah. Was that uh, some recording? girls? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think if I could go back and live wherever they were living in that beautiful 
beautiful, I'm sure, exquisite estate. And if I could have done all the food for them (gasps) and then been there to eat the food and enjoy it, just what it what I think would be so amazing, I mean, think about it, to have eaten with like yeah. Bob Marley or to eat with the Beatles back in the day when what they were doing was really mm. seemed very subversive. Yeah. Do you remember? You're, you, you're not old enough to remember. The Stones, I mean, I've read, I've read, of course, Keith Richards' book, which covers that era extremely well. Um, hard to uh, trust that narrator, I have to say. My life is... Uh, a little bit of a suspicious memoir, but that's my caveat about that book. But I, 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 Stones is definitely, yeah. Well, you know, um, I have a grandson who's five years old and we were vacationing and Keith Richards happened to be at this hotel. Turks and Caicos? It was Turks yeah, and he Caicos. Yeah, he lives there. He lives there and yeah. he and his, and his uh, wife or significant other, I don't know his marital stuff, but uh, with his French bulldog, would walk up and my we told my grandson that he was a pirate. And, <laughs> I love that. And at age four, he totally believed that Keith Richards was a pirate. Oh my but gosh. I think, you know, there's so many great eras of history, but um, I kind of like going forward, not backwards. Good answer. I think uh, I love that you're, it's a little view in, into your past. I think this, this, this Stones anecdote. Yeah, you saw I, some shows. Um, I have, have seen the them once, and it was a it was a real treat. Um, yeah. And it was many years ago. I have kind of refused to see them as seventy and older. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm just like retire already. I'm, I I can't do this anymore <laughs> with you. Um, but and now that Charlie's gone, it's 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 tough. I used to, you know, get into these arguments in college, whether the Stones were better than the Beatles and go back and forth and back and forth. And we happened to have somebody on our staff back in the day who was a professional musician, a Mm -hmm. bass player, played with the Lemonheads. And um, we would have all these conversations. And he actually was our music curator for years at my little listening bar, Bar 114, that I I started, I don't know, seven years ago. So fun. Very fun. I got to come hang out in Indianapolis, man. Oh, my God. This is an 18-seat great. It's it's, it's, kind a, of, it's a record bar? Yes, but I didn't know record bars were. Do you want to hear the whole story of Let's how go. it started? Yeah. All right. So I have this, my, my flagship location. My original location mm-hmm. is in an area in Indianapolis I will refer to as 49th and Penn totally irrelevant and Mm -hmm. meaningless to anyone listening probably, but 49th and Penn is the corner. And um, I had a little space there. And originally I created a little gelato store. Well, it was like long enough ago that people were in Indianapolis. People are very conservative, especially financially. And they didn't think spending $5 for the world's best gelato was, that was like not This is like seven years ago? So, Oh, no, it was even longer. Okay. That was maybe 10 or 12 yeah. years ago. It's a, tough, so, it's a tough one, yeah. It's a tough one, right? And I got it. So I was like, okay, we're not going to do gelato. What am I going to do? I'll put my office in here. And I was like, eh, I don't want to do that. Well, eventually, my my father, um, who I had a very um, tense relationship with, my father died. He was 90 and he died. And here's the thing. I know this is so off topic. No, this is but good. But here's the thing that's fast, that I think is fascinating. My mother is from Brooklyn. My father was from the Bronx. Mm. And they moved to Indiana 
um, to go to college uh, as a young married couple. And the reason they chose IU, Indiana University, was because of the School of Music. My parents were huge Mm -hmm. opera fans and huge classical music fans. And trained as well. And I'm sorry. Were they trained? Oh, no. They they were not students of music. They just loved. They were... They just went because they wanted to be able to go to a school Mm -hmm. um, where they could go and listen to opera. So my father was a huge audiophile, collected albums, vinyls, now we call them collected. That's all he did on his What incredible New Yorkers your parents sound like. They were pretty cool New Yorkers. Cool. Displaced New Yorkers moved to Indianapolis, Indiana for education and a job. So my dad dies, have a very fraught relationship. My brother and sister inherit everything with the exception of his vinyl collection, which gets dumped on me. At the same time, I'm thinking, what am I going to do with this little space? And I'm like, you know what? There are thousands of vinyls. I'm not kidding you. Thousands of vinyls. And I start going through them. And my father, God love him, saved every record that my sister and I ever bought. So the birds, the animals, I mean, Mm -hmm. you you name it, these old bands. Um, And some of the albums were barely touched. So the the disc was just pure. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to take this little 350-square-foot Thing, this room I have, and I, I'm going to put some amazing equipment in. I'm going to create a little bar. And even if I'm the only one who listens, I'm going to listen to all these vinyls. And so this was a service bar. So there would be actually a bartender there working. Yeah. Yeah. So did you, were you aware of like the, the Japanese culture? I had no vinyl idea. Bars? Absolutely nothing. This was just like truly all in a vacuum of naivete yeah. and whatever. Ignorance. That's the best sometimes. So like the second day I was open, uh, some customers of mine walked in and they happened to be the very high up with a speaker company that was based in Indianapolis called Klipsch, major mm-hmm. worldwide, yeah. known for sound quality. Oh, I had I had the catalogs when I was young growing up. I know exactly what well, those are. Well, if you've ever been to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or even the Barclays Center or wherever, they, Klipsch speakers yeah. are everywhere. and. They walked in and they went, we like your speakers. We don't love your speakers. (laughs) Be here at 2 o'clock the next day. 2 o'clock the next day I show up and they pull up and they bring on the most insane set of vintage Klipsch speakers. And so what we've done every every year since this is like ten years ago, we just keep improving our our, our the quality of our. What's the restaurant called or the bar? It's called Bar One Fourteen. It's at one. One fourteen is the, the address. address, and it's mm. an eighteen seat little bar, and we're just open Thursday, Friday, and Saturdays, and it is a shrine to vinyl. Listener, and, listener, get to the Midwest. It's like to have a rest to have it open only well, three Esquire, days. Well, Esquire, Jeff Gordon came in, yeah. and and he uh, named us in twenty twenty one of the top bars in the United States, top 10 bar in the nice. United Jeff, States. Nice. Jeff's got great taste. I like Jeff. Yeah. He, well, you know, he not only has wonderful taste in food, but he also is, yeah. he knows his music. So I was really cool. happy that he came in. I love that story. Now, have you been to Japan ever? I haven't, but I'm going this August. You have it booked? Oh, oh dang. I'm going. I've got it all you booked. You just have to smoke inside there because all those jazz bars, it's the only Ooh. place you smoke. So you've been? Yeah. Okay, well, they're great. We are going to have to give me a lot of recommendations. I love, I love this. I feel yeah. like we could talk about 
your your concepts, the Rolling Stones life. I love it, but I, I got to ask you my final question. Yeah, ask me restaurant stuff. I get it. No, no, I want to oh. ask you this final question. We asked all guests on oh. this podcast. If you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have unlimited funds, all the money in the world to create this book, what would that book be? Oh, wow. Well, you know, I'm going to start with my premise that the world doesn't need another cookbook. Oh, don't say I'm that. I'm sorry. We, this is the halls of Penguin Random House. We no, make I'm sorry. books. I'm sorry. Let me just Listen, say. Listen, I love need, the honesty. They need, I, I have to be honest. Hey, bring it. I, at one point in time, was the owner. I was so proud of my cookbook collection. Now, I, I don't collect them so much anymore. I buy cookbooks that are more like art coffee table books. But here's the truth. Um, if I were to create a cookbook, it would be for a limited audience of my family and friends. Okay. People I have had in my home and I have actually cooked for. Um, and those recipes are the ones that my my son actually just texted me. He's a chef in Los Angeles. And he said, would you please send me your matzo ball recipe? Oh, Which really? I think was hilarious. Um, uh, those, those are the kind of cookbooks I I want. Um, I am a little over cookbooks today that expect people to create restaurant quality meals mm-hmm. in their own kitchen. Um, I get to people's homes for dinner parties and they're so wiped out yeah. from preparing food for three days. And I'm like, no, give me that perfect roasted chicken mm-hmm. and I'm the happiest girl in the world. Yeah. And that's the cookbook I would write. It would yeah. be one for my friends and family. I respect that take. I, li- I like it. I, I like that you are caring about your friends and family. You're, where's your son cooking at? What's what's this? I, I hear LA chef. I'm like, who is, what's going on? Uh, he cooks at a, he's a chef at the rest at a restaurant called Lolo and Silver Lakes. That is fabulous. Mm-hmm. And I encourage everyone to yeah. go. It's a, beautiful wine bar and the food is truly Lolo? excellent. Lolo. L-O-L-O. Yeah. yeah, Silver Lake, what a place. Yeah, it's great. I love it. So you've got your daughter here in New York. Well, I have a daughter in New York. I have a daughter in Indianapolis yep. who actually is our director of sustainability. So there's one who's in the business. She's in the business. I love yeah, that. Which is really nice. You watch Succession? Uh, yeah. Uh, of I, course. I mean, it's to me like Shakespeare. It is. So so there's no battle. It's, it's going to be the one working. I love it. I will tell you, having my kids, two of my three, very involved in the restaurant industry has really, I think, helped me beyond. Yeah. I, I learned a long time ago that um, that I learn more from my kids than I can ever teach them. And I, I will maintain that having at least two of the three so involved in the restaurant world really helps me keep fresh. Martha Hoover, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's truly been a joy. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com And make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 